there's no greater investment than draft picks. We believe that the draft over time has proven out to be the best way to build a team that can sustain success if you do a good job. Everybody has a different draft board. If you can accept the fact that every team's board is different, it frees you up to do what's best for the club. Welcome into the lounge. We are going to be joined by General Manager Eric DaCosta to get his full post-2021 draft breakdown. I'm really excited for this interview, Garrett. Yeah, I mean, this is a chance to hear from the man who made the picks. And uh, I, I always think it's good to get like a few days removed. Because we obviously we hear from from Eric and from Harbaugh on draft weekend, but it's a bit of a whirlwind. Like there's just so much that happens in the draft room. Like the thoughts are are a little bit like more raw, which can be good, but it's not really like you, there is a benefit. Just like for us, like like when you have a time to like step back and take, I don't know, a day or two to get a good night's sleep and actually like think through like what happened in the draft you end up looking at it a little bit differently. Like I know that I look at the draft a little bit differently than I was on Thursday night when I was running on no sleep and I was just trying to you know keep my eyes open. So I, I think that it's cool to hear a few days removed from the draft, um, his perspective, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's like a, a, I feel better about the Bateman OA picks, and I felt good about them night of. I feel better with every passing day. I really like those picks. Yeah, well, Really, really like those picks. Also, like part of it for us, selfishly, is when you when you have a mock draft. <laughs> we don't get the pick right. Yeah, like yeah, you're mad. We don't get our picks right. We're you're like, mad nah. at them for not taking the guy that would have allowed us to get our mock draft right. That's really what is like <laughs> exactly. driving the the motivation. Uh, so once you get over that and you actually look at the players, then it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, oh yeah, yeah, they're smarter and better at this than us. Let's jump into it here. Enough, enough chatter from us. Let's jump into our interview with Eric DaCosta. Thrilled to be joined by Eric DaCosta. We got to start here, Eric. We got to get to the bottom of this whole missing calculator fiasco from Thursday night before the draft because this is big news. You know, a lot of people thought that we were going to trade in the first round, maybe trade out, you know, with that 31st pick. What I want to know is did the stress of the missing calculator in any way, shape, or form throw Pat Moriarty off his game and lead to complications when it came to executing a, a draft day trade. Yeah, you know, it was really a diabolical situation. You know, I'm not sure if the <laughs> Russians were to blame, but the calculator did did disappear. Someone absconded with the calculator. And, you know, it was a conspiracy, skullduggery, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um but, you know, fortunately, we were able to find the missing calculator. It had been concealed in a locker, essentially. Um, it did. It stunned Pat. You know, he was off his game. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a level of anxiety in Pat that I haven't seen for quite some time. And it ended up being a situation <laughs> where we felt that making a trade, given Pat's physical and mental state, would have been irresponsible. We decided to pass on making any trades in round one with the idea that hopefully he would get a good night's sleep, take his meds, uh, have a glass of wine, <laughs> rally, and allow us to make a trade the next day. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I was also wondering, were, were there any other shenanigans? You know, we don't have to name names, any culprits or suspects, any other shenanigans during draft weekend? Well, you know, again, going back to Pat, it was a very strange weekend for Pat. Uh, his his car disappeared. Mm. <laughs> his car wow. his car disappeared during the draft. 
and <laughs> it ended up on the other side of the facility down by the loading docks. And mm. again, uh, we're not sure. We have our suspicions. We think, again, might have been the Russians, uh, <laughs> might have been some political group or another coach on a rival team or GM trying to get Pat. <laughs> on the third day, as you guys know, we make a lot of trades and different maneuvers on the third day of the draft. And uh, again, the, the question really is, how did his car get moved? The keys were in his jacket pocket. He was wearing his jacket at the time all throughout that particular part of the draft. How did somebody then get the keys during the draft, move his car, get back into the facility, replace the keys, wow. and not get caught on videotape? Mm. <laughs> we got to get wow. to the bottom. got to get to the yeah, at some point you got to get to the bottom of this. I, I got to believe the last thing on this. I, Pat is either going to just hang it up because he can't handle these shenanigans anymore, or I'm surprised at this point he doesn't show up to work and basically throw everything in a safe to keep himself protected. <laughs> well, he has a safe in his office. The problem is that safe has been hacked as well. So that oh, wow. safe, the safe is not safe, and we've had some issues with the safe in the past. <laughs> You know, part of the problem with Pat, if I could just say this, is he's every IT guy's worst nightmare because this is a guy that keeps every password that he's ever had in his backpack <laughs> on little note cards. And so, uh, you know, he's an old school guy and he's a creature of habit and his life by, by nature is, is unsafe and he opens himself up to all this uh, malfeasance and various shenanigans. <laughs> poor Pat. Poor Pat. Nice. That's all, I think that's all I can say. So, all right, let's talk a little draft uh, beyond just the shenanigans that took place over the course of the weekend. Obviously, a fun, I like exciting... the skullduggery. That was a good word. Yeah, skullduggery. That's a good That one. was nice. I'm going to have to try to work that in a few more times. So, if at the start of the day, did you think that Rashad Bateman was going to be there at 27? Well, I did. I actually did. I thought there'd be a reasonable chance that he would be there. We had it at about 60%. We felt that the uh, the hot-button teams would be the Bears at 20 the uh, and the Titans at 22 with the chance that possibly the Packers at uh, 28 might try and trade up to get him. But we felt that in the early 20s, those would be the teams. Uh, basically felt he had a pretty good chance he'd be there. And our plan really was, based on the board and based on everything, that it made the most sense for us to go receiver before pass rusher with the idea that we would get a good pass rusher at 31 if the situation presented itself. Yeah, I really want to talk to you about that Packers situation because I kind of dug into that a little bit afterwards and thought it was interesting because, you know, Brian uh, Gutekunst, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's traded up in the first round all three years of, as GM of the Packers. So there's a real chance that he might leap you guys and take Bateman. They had a wide receiver need. They clearly did because they drafted one in the second round. They moved up to get uh, the Clemson Amari Rodgers. So was that part of your thinking, thinking that the Packers might jump you for Bateman when you made the whole, you know, I'm insulted by the wide receiver comments and all that that went that went kind of viral, thinking, all right, if I just plant the seed enough that we might not take a wide receiver here, then that might create enough hesitation on Brian's part that he doesn't trade up and leapfrog me. Yeah, well, I would just say, you know, no comment, other than to say that the draft is a game, 
and there's a strategy involved and you try and be as uh you know as gray as possible with everything that you say and you never want to really give anybody a strong indication of what you're going to do so uh, we've learned that the hard way over the years and so for me Anything I say before the draft should be dismissed. You know, um, <laughs> we, we certainly didn't want to be attached to receivers, just like in 2018, we did not want to be connected to Lamar Jackson. So um, I'll, I'll tell you guys a quick story that, you know, years and years and years ago, we, uh, we liked T.Y. Hilton quite a bit. And we were, we were excited about T.Y. Hilton. And... Uh, we thought he would bring a lot of value to the club as a slot receiver and as a return man. Coming out of uh, wherever we, I think it was Florida International. Mm-hmm. Um, might be Florida Atlantic, but one or the other. And the, the, problem, the problem was that year, uh, Chuck Pagano went to Indy and he brought some assistant coaches with him. And so... Uh, we had had our first set of draft meetings and talked about all the players, and we liked T.Y. a lot. And I think we had maybe the first pick of the fourth round, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the pick that I thought we'd get T.Y. Hilton with. And what happened that year was right at the end of the third round, right at the end, the Indianapolis Colts traded up from the top of the fourth but behind us. They traded up into the bottom of the third round and they drafted T.Y. Hilton. And that always bothered me because we were going to take him. It was a great pick by the Colts. He's a great receiver, Pro Bowl guy, very, very talented. But I always felt like somebody knew that we were going to take T.Y. Hilton at the top of the fourth round and trade it up into the bottom of the third round to get him. And that bothered me. Mm. And so, you know, for me... I'm always going to keep my, my cards close to the vest. And, and our intention is not to help people with other teams make decisions. Our intention is not to help the media write stories. Our intention is to do what's best for the club. The club has to win. And that's always our goal at draft time. That's, that's fascinating. Right. I, I, I mean, you fooled us. I, I will say that both Mink and I were off the scent after the pre-drive presser. Neither of us had a receiver in the first round. So I think that the the takeaway from that this year is I'm no longer believing anything that's said at the pre-draft presser. That's that's how I'm coming away with this year. I can't believe anything that that you guys say out there next year. <laughs> <laughs> I I do feel like though, Eric, like I I I do sense that. I mean, I do think that people have kind of discounted our wide receivers that we have on the roster already, like the young wide receivers. Like I don't think that to me, I didn't take that as a complete like you being a complete ruse, like. The, the fact that people have said, oh, the Ravens don't have young wide receivers, like, that, that is kind of insulting, right? Like, these guys are still early in their careers. Like, was there some truth to that comment at the same time? Oh, yeah, I, I 100% stand by what I said. But yeah. I'm not going to sit here today and say I didn't have other reasons for saying it quite like that as well. You know, I believe in <laughs> right. our guys. I believe in all of those guys. I believe in Miles and Hollywood and James and Devin. I believe in Sammy, you know, um... I believe in all those guys. I never mm-hmm. said we wouldn't take a receiver. I just said I believed in those guys. And basically, I'm tired of answering right. those questions. But uh, <laughs> I never said we wouldn't take a receiver. 
I just stand by those guys right. as being good young players, ascending players who are going to get better and better and better and better. But we want to have the strongest team we can be. And if that means we have to draft two receivers, so be it. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk about the strategy a little bit in terms of restocking that receiver position? You know, Going back a few years, you talked about taking some more shots at that position. And in your time as GM, you've taken six receivers. Uh, so you've clearly made that a priority. Can you just talk about your the strategy behind kind of restocking that spot? Well, I want to be the, known as the GM that finally gets a good receiver in the draft, you know, for the Ravens. I mean, you know, it's kind of like Theo Epstein, who I really admire for his career. He went to Boston and won a World Series, and he went to Chicago, the Cubs, and he actually won a World Series. And no matter what he would ever do for the rest of his career, he's going to be the guy that brought a World Series title to Boston and the guy that brought a World Series title to Chicago. I want to be known as the GM who brought a drafted wide receiver to Baltimore. And, and I think we actually already have those guys on campus. But, you know, in all seriousness, I think that's a position that's very hard to evaluate. It's a position that is intertwined with the quarterback and with the offensive coordinator and the skills of the other players. And the only way to really address that and find the right guys is to keep drafting guys that you like at that position. So that's what we've tried to do. We've tried to be aggressive and find guys that we like as players that have the skill set to really augment the club that we think will, will gel with Lamar and the other wide receivers and just make us a better football team. You, you kind of mentioned Lamar. How much uh, pre-draft talk and even going back to like the postseason meetings with Steve and, and everybody, how much talk was there about kind of building around Lamar and, and giving him the tools to, to really take the next step in his development, not, not only from wide receivers, but building up the offensive line? Like, just helping him kind of take the next step. Was that a big priority this offseason? Well, that's always a big priority. I, I think our goal is to always build the best team we can, the best both sides of the ball, offense and defense, to really build the best unit. It's not about collecting talent. It's about building the best team. And so we try to do that. I think we've done it in different ways over the years. But we, we've tried to do that. We try to find players that fit what we are and what we do and who we want to be as best as possible. Uh, we understand that you've got to have a strong offensive line. You've got to have playmakers. Uh, you've got to have running backs in our offense. You've got to have multiple running backs in our offense. You've got to have guys that are selfless players that will block and catch. You've got to have receivers that are willing to do the dirty work. And you've got to have offensive linemen who can pass protect and run block and pull. Smart guys that can adjust quickly. You've got to have smart players across the board and uh, guys who can do multiple things. So I want to talk about, we spent a lot of time on, on Bateman here, the first first round pick, but also Adafi Owe, who you took uh, at number 31. You know, He was another interesting player because I've heard you guys talk so much over the past several years about how you love sack production. And a lot of the guys who you've taken have had a ton of sack production. I mean, the most ever in college, and you're talking about guys like Terrell Suggs and Matthew Judon and Jalen Ferguson, guys who just have put up really big numbers. But Owe is somebody who, who I, as we know, is an incredible athlete uh, and affects the game um, in a lot of different ways. So I'm just curious, like, what was the conversations? what were the conversations leading up to the draft as you try to marry okay, this guy's got an incredible workout. Drew Wilkins says it's the best workout he's ever seen. But you don't have any sacks. Um, how do you kind of marry those things as you're making that decision? 
Yeah, it's a good question. We spent a lot of time on Owe as a prospect. The one thing that stood out about him was the size and speed, but also really how effective and at times dominant he was as a run defender. So for us, you know, I'll go back to a guy like Courtney Upshaw, who we took in the second round. Courtney was a dominant run defender coming out, but his measurables were nowhere close. I mean, nowhere close to Adafi Owe's measurables. And we saw the flashes as a pass rusher. We saw his ability to impact games. We saw his ability to disrupt. Uh, we also know, we've seen, we've seen young players who don't have sack production who get to the NFL and emerge. We've seen that repeatedly. This is a guy that's a younger player, underclassman, tremendous physical gifts, critical factors, position specifics on the come. Uh, so we, we think his ceiling is extremely high. And quite honestly, given the way that he plays the run, given his motor, given his toughness, given his intelligence, we think his floor is extremely high. Mm. And for us, that's what makes him a great pick. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think a lot of people have kind of looked at him and said, well, this could really hit big or it's not going to. But I agree with you. When you have that good an athlete, it's kind of hard to miss completely in a way. Yeah, and as I said, on first and second downs, this guy is going to be a highly effective run player, edge setter. He's going to chase down screens and draws. He's going to do all kinds of different things. Plus, he's got the pass rush on third downs, the unusual size-speed combination, the speed and burst, the twitch, all those different things. And we think with coaching, this guy is going to really emerge and become a great player for us. Right. Now, you, you've drafted a lot of really good athletes, like big-time testers who blew up the combine. I mean, we're talking – I mean, Hollywood didn't run, but we all knew he was super fast, right? Miles Boykin blew up the combine. Patrick Queen, very athletic. Matabike, Duvernay. You know, it seems like you've kind of put a high priority on that, especially with early picks on getting some premier athletes. W would you say that that's a, a high priority for you? You know, it's not just the production. It's not just – playing hard. I mean, those things are obviously important, but getting some top-notch athletes is a really high priority for you. Yeah, I think one formula is talent plus mentality equals success. And so you get really, really talented guys. If they have the right mentality, the right drivers and personality, then, then you have a chance to really hit on something special. Talent without personality doesn't get you there. Personality without talent usually doesn't get you there. It's got to be talent plus personality success. Mm. Uh, along those lines, a, a theme that I think I've seen over the past few years with these drafts is that you're really making an effort to get ascending players. Like I think of Patrick Queen is that way. He had one year as a starter, but he came on really strong over the course of that season and was playing his best football at the end of the year. Always a guy who we just talked about. It's not like he's been playing football that long, what, five years? And so he's an underclassman, so an ascending player. Is that part of the strategy or is that more a coincidence that you know that that theme has existed over the past few years well what we've done you know first of all we want all of our players to be ascending all of our draft picks should be ascending we've probably put a bigger focus in the last couple of years partially due to covid on big school players mm -hmm. um just because in some ways the acclimation may be a little bit easier given the big school, like let's face it, if you draft a guy from LSU or Ohio State uh, or Penn State, 
it's probably going to be easier for them to get used to the NFL than it would drafting some guy from, you know, Saginaw Valley or Lane College or, you know, Bentley. It's just going to be easier. And given the pandemic, given the lack of uh, understanding at times about off-season program and OTAs and access to these guys and all these different things, it just makes sense to us to draft guys that come from big school programs. Now, the other thing is uh, studies have shown that all things being equal, draft the younger players if you can. So, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, developmentally, they have more room to ascend. If they're already playing at X level, they're probably going to get even, if they're 20 versus 22 or 23, they still have room to ascend. So we do that. Uh, and then we try to draft healthy guys. We try to draft guys that haven't been beat up a lot. We try to draft guys that don't have a ton of injuries and wear and tear on their tires. And as I said, personality is critically important. I'm very proud of this class on last year's class and the class before that uh, of people, the type of guys they are, their motivations, their growth mindset, their pride in their craft, uh, you know, discipline, um, accountability, leadership. All those different things really factor in for us when we make these decisions. And we think this year's class grades out very high in those regards. It's interesting you talk about the big school thing, too, because it makes me think about how, you know, you've talked about how teams across the league have kind of caught up to each other in a way. There's just so much written about these guys. It's hard to find those those gems, you know, like the Ladarius Webb out of Nichols State, right? The Brandon Williams in the third round out of Missouri Southern, you know? Like, where I feel like we had a track record of unearthing these small school guys. Like, now, it's is it just harder to do that? So it's like, let's just change our strategy a little bit here? No, I don't think it's quite that, Ryan. I think, you know, we, you know, we had a period of time where we felt that small school players probably presented the most value, and everybody was scouting all these big mm-hmm. school guys. And so for us... um you know, small school guys, you know, the Brandon Williamses and the Ryan Jensen's and guys like that, those, that, that's really an essence of scouting that, that I love and that we crave and that we think we're the best in the league at. I mean, you know, self, you know of course we're going to feel that way, but, but we do. We, we pride ourselves on small school scouting. And I think we've mm-hmm. done very, very well, you know, whether it's a guy like, you know, Joe Flacco, for instance, um, there's been a lot of other instances of these small school guys that we feel really strongly about. On the other hand, the last couple of years have really been challenging for the scouting profession. And so for us to be able to mitigate the risk, we just felt like big school, power five type guys probably made the most sense. Doesn't mean we won't go back to the small school scouting next year to try to find the next mm-hmm. Kyle use check. Um, but the right. last couple of years, it's just been more challenging. And we decided that it was probably smart for us to go after the big school guys. So, so all right, let's go to the third round here, and, and you take Ben Cleveland, who it, it sounded like in the draft room that Harbaugh was probably looking across the table at you and saying, all right, let's go up and get him. Let's go up and get him. Are you going to trade up? I don't know if he's going to be there. How much was he hassling you to try to trade up and get Ben Cleveland because he was nervous he was going to fly off the board? Yeah, you know, uh, John always hassles me when it comes to the draft. <laughs> uh <laughs> No, seriously, you know, John is a good evaluator and he's passionate about his feelings. He's got strong opinions and I love that. 
you know? Just like when Ozzy was the GM, I had strong opinions and I was passionate. As a decision maker, that's what you want, you know? So I really value his input. Uh, ben was a guy that we had across the board, a lot of faith in as a player. Um, John really liked him. So I think, you know, the, the, the anxiety of not picking in the second round all the way to basically pick 94 in the third, that's pretty tough. Was there some feelings that we should trade up? Uh, yeah. And, and so me, uh, my job is to listen to those feelings and to either agree or disagree. In that particular instance, I felt that it would be prudent for us to wait and see what happens. And fortunately, we did. Now, last year, different situation. Uh, we made a decision to make a trade, specifically hoping to get one player. And that player got picked right before we had a pick to make. So that's on me. I made the decision to trade back. I thought we'd get the guy, and we didn't get him. So my job as GM is to understand league value. How does the league see this player? Not just you. And, and when I look at the best GMs, uh, the best decision makers, throughout the course of the NFL, you know, guys like Bill Belichick, George Young, Ron Wolfe, guys that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, the Bobby Bethards of the world. One of the things that all those guys were able to do is ascertain league value of the player and then club value. That's a big part of my job. And so if I think that there's a chance that Ben Cleveland can be there at 94, I'm not going to trade up to get him. Now, if I think he's going to get picked and I covet the player, then maybe I do that. And you win some and you lose some. I mean, no GM is perfect. Gosh, I've made so many mistakes. And I'll make them. I'll continue to make them. But I've got to look at the short term of the franchise and the long term of the franchise. And when you give draft picks away to trade up and get a player, a lot of times it doesn't work out exactly as you want it to work out. And the data, the analytics... You know, the Cade Masseys of the world will tell you that it's always better to stand pat or trade back rather than trading up to get a guy. And I believe that. I value the data behind it and the science behind it. And so I'm always going to favor trading back or standing pat rather than trading up to get a guy. In this case, it worked out. Last year, it didn't. What I will say is last year, it didn't work out. But then again, it really did work out because the player that we got ended up being one of our best picks last year. Mm. Well, now I'm going to have to go back and look at last year's draft and break this whole down, this all down <laughs> to figure out who that was and who you, who you wanted. I, I think it was interesting, too, I mean, with the Cleveland pick. I mean, the Vikings took Wyatt Davis, another guard, at 86. Then the Steelers took another guard, Kendrick Green, at 87. So you had a good feel on Cleveland because two guards went not long before. Ben Cle Harbaugh must have been sweating those picks out. He was, and I, again, I go back to <laughs> the, uh, the study of biases, and so consensus bias, that everybody sees things as you see, th see, see things. You know, every team right. has a different draft board. And if you can wrap your fingers around that very idea, then you understand the probability that good players are going to fall down to you. Not every single team had been Cleveland as the fourth or fifth best guard in the draft we believe he is but obviously Cleveland whoever else you mentioned these players getting picked 
They didn't have right. it that way. And so a mistake that everybody makes, they trade up to get a guy because they believe everybody sees it exactly as you see it. It's just like when you go into a, a restaurant and you, you order something and the person with you orders it and you love it and they don't. And you just can't believe that they don't right. love it. Or there's a series on TV that you're just addicted to and your spouse doesn't love it. You know, you expect them to love it because you love it, but they don't love it. That's what makes the whole world right. go round. Everybody has a different draft board. And if you can accept the fact that every team's board is different, then it frees you up to do what's best for the club. Right. You know, you talking about this got me thinking, you know, I always think that the, the real NFL draft is exactly like my fantasy football draft, obviously, right? <laughs> and and after, after I finished my fantasy football draft, I spend the rest of the night, I mean hours, pouring over the whole thing, playing the what ifs, you know, ah, I should have gone in this direction with this pick. You know, what if I had picked this guy earlier? That would have led me down this path, you know, break the whole thing down. Do you do that as a general manager after a real NFL draft? Uh, probably not. You know, I think what we do, we, what we do is we just live in the moment and we prepare for the next pick. And then when the draft ends, we've moved on, you know, we're looking at the roster, we're looking at the strengths and weaknesses. We're looking at opportunities to continue to get improving as a football team. We're looking at potential deals we can do, um, all those kind of things. But I do think that at some point, uh, you do go back and self scout, you look at your team. You look at the picks. What makes this guy a good pick? What makes this guy a bad pick? What do we miss? What do we see? What can we do better? Uh, you know, where are we vulnerable? What are the blind spots that we have in the scouting process? Uh, what are our biases? What can we do to improve? Uh, all those kind of things do take place, but they take place over time. And sometimes mm -hmm. they don't take place for a couple of years, but they're important steps. I think you've got to be willing to critically look at yourself. What are you good at? What are your faults? What are your mistakes? To learn from those mistakes and move forward as a team. So another guy I want to ask you about is Brandon Stevens, who you also took in the third round. And I got, I got two questions with him. First of all, he's interesting because he was a running back, then he's a corner, and then you talk about him being a potential safety. So how do you evaluate a guy when you're, when you're talking about switching positions and projecting him to that new position. And then also in your, in your call to him, you, you talked about how you called James Prochet and asked him, can he cover? And I'm also just curious how often you talk to current players about guys they were, they were either teammates with or went up against just to get their perspective about those specific players. Yeah, so with Brandon, he's an interesting player. He did transfer uh, from UCLA to SMU. He's a running back who became a corner. Uh, with some spot play at safety. He's a big guy. He ran really well. He's a very athletic player. I think what I've said, and I, I still feel this way, what made him exciting for me to evaluate was his physicality, which probably stems from his experiences as a running back, which is a very physical, physically challenging, demanding position. He's a smart player. Uh, he, he, we know that because he evolved into being a very good defensive back pretty quickly. Um, we see a lot of traits that good corners and safeties have. And uh, he's just a good young ascending player. We see a lot of upside. We felt that had he probably stayed in college for another year, he'd have been a pretty high pick. So the traits are all there for this guy. 
Love is intelligence. Uh, love is toughness, physical skills. Love is size. And, uh, you know, we do. And, and I did reach out to James. And we have done that. We do do that a lot. Um, it's, it's a good thing to do because players know players. Players know personalities. And our players only have one allegiance and it's to the Ravens and to the club and to us being the very best we can be. So if a player were to say to me, this guy's not a Raven, that would carry a lot of weight. And in this particular case, James was effusive in his praise of Brandon and it helped me feel confident that this was the right guy to take at the right time. Moving down to the next pick, uh, did you expect that you would take two wide receivers in this year's draft when you were going into it, or, or did you just come away and, and Tylen's on the board and you say, this guy's too good, I can't pass this up? Well, we talked about that, and we've done that in the past multiple times where we've taken two guys at the same position. We, we did it all the way going back to when we took Ben Grubbs and Marshall Yonda back in <laughs> 07. Right. Uh, we took uh, Ed Dixon, and we took Dennis Pitta. Uh, we took Hayden, we took Mark Andrews. So we've done that a lot of different times. Uh, we just, we try to, you know, that's a great example. I think Thielen Wallace is really a great example of BPA, best player available. Hmm. And he truly was. And so for all the naysayers out there who say, oh, the Ravens really don't draft best player available, they draft need. Um, again, that's a great example of us drafting best player available. This is a guy that uh, tough, uh, hands as good as you'll ever see, great contested catch player, outside ability. So one of the things that I did uh, leading up to the draft was, was go to uh, Sarah um, Malay-Pale in uh, analytics and ask her to do a report on outside receivers, uh, the best outside receivers in college football. And... Two of the top ten names she gave me were Rashad Bateman and Thielen Wallace. Uh, I think her approach was really sound. I thought her ability to communicate was really good. And uh, both players really fit what we're looking for in different ways. And so he was an easy pick to make, all things considered. I, I know you're not going to give uh, any any specifics behind that because I try to get that out of you on draft weekend, and you won't, you know, reveal the secrets on those analytics. Um, but but it is fascinating just to hear about how that how that affects decision making. You know, like that that is everyone always wonders like and asks how do analytics play into the process, and it's clear like that is a significant piece of the equation as you're evaluating making these decisions. Yeah, what we try to do, Garrett, I feel confident, you know, comfortable talking now, is what we try to do is compare thumb size to big toe. And the ratio um, between the two of those things really helps us determine if this guy is going to be an inside receiver, outside receiver, or possible long snapper. And you'd be, you'd, be, you'd be surprised the correlation between thumb size and long snapping and how receivers with small thumb sizes end up being really good long snappers. I'm going to keep that in mind for next year. That's the secret. That's the secret sauce right that's there. The, that's the next combine measurement they're going to come out with. You know, Everybody's going to be buzzing about thumb sizes next year. We're going to know who started that. Uh, Eric, I wanted to go back to, to Lamar for a second. And uh, you know, I'm not going to ask you where you are with contract talks because I feel like you've given the same answer on that in five different ways. Uh, but I want to talk to you about something that you mentioned earlier about how you know, when you were taking over as GM, one part of the job that you felt nervous about was kind of your relationship building with the players. That was something that was going to be a little bit different for you in your new role. 
and you've talked about how your relationship with Lamar has has been really good throughout this through this process of, of the extension. Can you talk about how you built that relationship with Lamar and and kind of just fostered it in what can be a, a, a tricky time between a general manager and a quarterback as they're approaching a contract extension? Well, I just really appreciate Lamar's leadership abilities and his humility, especially and his ability to really galvanize a bunch of different people. I mean, that's a special quality that Lamar has. Forget about the physical skills as a player and as a quarterback. He's got a unique ability to bring all different types of people together for one common goal. And I appreciate that. You know, I, I think as a general manager, that should be my role as well. And so I see Lamar as a guy who does that better than most. And uh, I admire that quality about him. I've seen him. I watch him. I observe him quite a bit. Um, I'm just, he'd, he'd be the kind of guy you'd be very proud of to have as a son. And uh, I just really respect the way that he plays and his competitiveness and his personality and his ability to, to lead uh, players. I find that, you know, very, very impressive. And uh, I just think he's got all the right stuff. I asked earlier about asking players about other players. How important is it when you have a franchise quarterback, you know, the most important position in pro sports, how important is it to involve him in the team building process? You know, like it's, it is different than just any other player. And, and is that something that you think about as you build a team and a roster over the course of an off season? Well, I value all the veteran players input. Certain guys will hit me up on players and text me and ask questions. A lot of our players are interested in how the roster is built in the skills of different players and they study college football and they obviously study pro football. So that's something that I find very helpful at different points in time. Um, you know, ironically last year, Lamar uh, texted me the name of a player that he knew, somebody that he knew. And he, he said, this guy's going to be a good player. This guy's going to make it. And the guy didn't get drafted, but the guy did sign as a free agent after the draft that he made a team. And uh, so uh, I've admitted to Lamar that I screwed up in that situation. I probably should have signed the guy as a free agent. But uh, listen, players know players. Um, you know, they know, uh, particularly guys that grew up with players or have been around players or know players from a certain school, certain part of the country, whatever it is. Um, these guys have been playing this game all their lives, most of these guys, and they know what it takes. So if they see it, uh, and they can communicate it, it can be helpful. You know, I appreciate that. And then for me to ask our guys about players who they know can be a really valuable perspective and give me a lot of good input to make decisions. One thing I think that's been lost a little bit in the shuffle of, of grading, you know, in air quotes, this draft, is that you also got an extra fourth round pick next year in, in the trade with Arizona. And you're really stockpiling picks for next year. I mean, with the comp picks, you know, likely from Judon and, and Yannick, the one, the third rounder for Cully. I mean, next year's draft, you're already loaded. How much of that was of kind of by intention by, by you that you wanted to set yourself up next year to also have the ammunition to be able to move around the draft and add more good, young, cheap players, you know, once Lamar's under contract for a bigger contract? You know, we've been trying to trade uh, a pick in any given draft for a better pick the following year for many years, and it's always been something that we've tried to do. 
it's it's just it's never really happened and so there was elation this year when we did that just because it's been a goal of ours um you know teams will discount a pick in next year's draft and uh you know for a specific pick in this year's draft so if you trade a a, a five in this year's draft then the discount would be a five in this year's draft is equal to a four in next year's draft and it's 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 a discount because you're talking about a player that you can get now versus a player that you can only get a year from now. But if you really just think about it, a fifth-round pick and a fourth-round pick, the fourth-round pick is more valuable even though it's a, it's a year later. So to be able to trade back a little bit and get a fourth-round pick or a better pick next year, we see that as a good opportunity. The other thing I would say is, again... Given the pandemic, given the decrease in salary cap, we think there's no greater investment than draft picks. We believe that, you know. Uh, We believe that the draft over time has proven out to be the best way to build a team that can sustain success. If you do a good job, people will say, well, no team does better than any other team. That's correct. I believe that to be the case. However, I would argue that having more draft picks gives you a better chance to build a team because the draft is a luck-driven process. So if you have 12 draft picks in any given year, you have a much better chance of building a team than a team that has five draft picks in that same year. You just do. And no one will convince me otherwise. So for us, stockpiling picks is always going to be something that the Ravens will do. We've always been a draft-centric team. Ozzy's always been the master of that, going back to 1996. And that's not going to change. That's our identity. If you ask people about the Ravens, they'll probably say a strong defense and a drafting team, a good drafting team. And, and we don't want that to change. Right. We'll let you out of here on this one, Eric. Uh, on a number of occasions, you finish the draft and give us a baseball analogy to kind of summarize your feelings on the draft. A few days removed. I'm putting you on the spot. I don't know if you've thought about this already. Do you have a good analogy for us this year? What, you know, Was it a John Means no-hitter? Is it that good? What are you thinking? <laughs> you know, I think we, we were lucky in the, in, the, in the first round. We had a double play. You know, uh, we, got, <laughs> we, got, we got Bateman and we got Oway and we were able to get off the field feel really good about the situation. So getting those two guys, both those guys in the first round, two guys that we had as, you know, for us on our board, really top 20 type guys in this year's draft. Uh, we felt like we escaped with something really good early on. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Really appreciate it. I'm going to go uh, measure my toe, my big toe size, thumb, <laughs> see what position. I'm uh, going to end up in at the at the NFL level here. Uh, just great stuff. Really appreciate the insight. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So I'm about ready to go back, pull up the, the draft recap from 2020. Let's see where the Ravens <laughs> traded back and who they wanted to get. Well, would All that... right. Go ahead. You can keep talking while I do this. Well, here. my question, I was trying to remember this. Would it be the J.K. Dobbins pick? You know, he said it turned out to be one of our best players. So mm. uh, my thought immediately, you know, went to Dobbins because the Ravens moved oh! and AJ and, oh! your, 
and your boy AJ Epinesa. My guy AJ Epinesa. Well, who you had us taking at, at like 26. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted Epinesa after all. This destroys your argument that we never even wanted him. Oh, all well, right. So that's that. Did did we trade back any other time? Did they trade back in the first round? No, they 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 picked at their normal spot. Um, wait, 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 wait. Baltimore, Baltimore, New England. Did we? Did the Madden? No, that wasn't. Trade? Was that a trade back? Team? That wasn't the the J.K. Dobbins pick. Now, as I think about it, that wasn't a trade back. That was the Hayden Hurst pick. So that was okay, a Hayden Hurst yeah, trade. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, wait. I think it was Matabike. I think we went from sixty. Mm. We went. We sent pick sixty to New England. <laughs> Um, who took a pass rusher. Then we dropped down to 71, where we yeah. took Matabike, who was a very good pick. Yep. One pick before was safety Brandon Jones from Texas. Yeah. Interesting. Now, you know. So maybe did, that's the guy. Maybe. Tell me about Brandon Jones, Ryan. What, what do you remember about him? I don't know. He's <laughs> no, it's nothing. Nothing. I mean, we, we would have had Deshaun Elliott and, no, uh, and Brandon yeah. Jones, two Texas safeties. Right. Maybe, maybe that was the case. But, maybe maybe it was about BK. The, the Dobbins pick doesn't doesn't make sense. So just to come full circle, they never wanted Epinesa. You were wrong all along. You never had a shot on that one. <laughs> um, but just just to just to talk about his interview from this year, like I thought he had some he had some great stories. The Ty Hilton was a good a, a really good story, good perspective, and you just. I don't know. To me, hearing from him, like you just get more of an understanding and appreciation for the thought that goes into this draft. And there's so much, there's so many little things. Like I thought his point about the benefit of taking a younger player, if all things are being all things equal, like that's a minor thing. But we've seen that Patrick Queen was 20 when the Ravens drafted him. Like that's something that we've seen. And so mm-hmm. there, like there are trends. Now this is Eric's third draft. There are trends that are developing, and that's I think one of them. And I just it's just fascinating to hear kind of the the method behind the madness. I thought I thought it was interesting the you know uh, take an athlete who has a good attitude and a high high athleticism. You marry those two things together. You know we've often thought about the Ravens as being a college. You know rely on the tape, the tape, the tape, the tape. You know it's it's did the guy make plays in college? You know, what's their tape look like? And, and I think Eric has has shifted, based on analytics, I think he's shifted a little bit more towards what kind of, what's the what's the ceiling here? What's the high upside, you know? And it's also interesting because Eric has previously said, you know, his predecessor, Ozzy and, and uh, his predecessors have talked about how in the first round, you don't need to hit a home run every time. Hit a double. Mm-hmm. Double in the first round is a good thing. You know, get a, a very solid starter. Maybe he's a pro bowler. You know, maybe not. But he's a really good pick. You, in the first round, you try to hit doubles. It see, kind of seems like Eric's swinging for the fences. You know? He, he's he's going for the bombs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is one thing that I think is unchanged. Uh, and I think we talked about this on, on draft night. Like, this is not a... There's some risk. It's a high... High reward, high risk, high reward draft. I, in my opinion, 
and looking at this. Now he, he dispelled a little bit of that in, in talking about Owe and how he has a high floor. Yeah. I think that I think the notion there is that And Bateman has a high floor, I think. Like, yeah. People generally regard Bateman as having a high floor because he's so polished. Right. But I think that like the safe pick, the safe pick in my mind would have been to take an offensive lineman in the first round. You know, Tevin Jenkins mm-hmm. is an easy point to point to. You take him and you just say, All right, we got a big mauling offensive lineman who can play tackle or guard potentially. And no one really would talk about that that much. Just all right, good pick. You got an offensive lineman there. But they went with right. the, the riskier approach, but the potential higher payout. And so I I think that there's there's definitely truth to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, really good stuff. Uh, we are going to have a lot more chatter about the Ravens draft picks uh, forthcoming. Rookie minicamp is right around the corner. Coming next week, we're going to give you... We're gonna we're gonna try to get a full breakdown of this rookie class from an X's and O's film perspective before then, uh, but the very at the least we're gonna be back with you after rookie minicamp to kind of tell you what we saw on the field. So make sure you hit us up uh, with with your emails at the lounge at ravens.nfl.net, and we will be back with you next week.